The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in the automotive industry and its supporting ecosystem and help them move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to help make the world a better place, it's time to run or drive with the Game Changers. This is where you want to be. Let's see what the buzz is. Okay, I have a quote from a gentleman named Kevin Fitchard, F-I-T-C-H-A-R-D, quoted in Fortune.com. This quote is a couple of years old, March 27, 2015, but very applicable to our topic. Let's see if you can guess what we're going to be talking about. Quote, Wi-Fi hotspots are were just the beginning. As wireless technologies in GM cars evolve, those vehicles will become nodes on the larger Internet, sending vast amounts of information to the cloud where it can be shared. There's my key word. Where it can be shared with your mechanic, with your smartphone, apps, and other cars. Oh, my. So what are we talking about? You get the drift. The dawn of data flowing from sensors in connected autonomous cars, and maybe not that autonomous yet, has sparked the inevitable value proposition. Automakers are seeing dollar signs from selling that data, your data, to businesses like tech giants Google and Apple and more. Reality check. Are they daydreaming? Is this data really worth anything? Are there really dollar signs worth cashing in on? Or is this just... I don't know. Is it real? Is it ephemeral? Is it a pipe dream? So we're going to find out. We have a great panel today. You know who they are because they're here with us so often, our three automotive gurus. First up, in a moment, I'll be speaking with Heather Ashton, Research Manager at IDC Manufacturing Insights. Joining her on the panel, Joe Barkai, Automotive Industry Analyst, Author, and Blogger. We'll find out what else he's been up to recently. And rounding out the panel is the sponsor of this series, our very own car guy at SAP, Larry Stowe. Senior Director of Automotive Global Marketing at SAP. So let's see what the opening quotes are they've sent us. Well, it's about time. Heather Ashton has sent us a quote from KIT, capital K, capital I, capital T, capital T, the talking car in the Knight Rider TV series. If you're not old enough, look it up, K-I-T-T, and the series was on TV. Oh, let's see. It was Michael. What was his name, um, uh, Heather? Who was the star of this? Uh, the good-looking, oh. really good-looking, with the with the beautiful hair. I have to remember. Somebody remember yeah, his name. he went on to name. Baywatch. I forget his he Went on to Baywatch, right? Wait, with a little, I'll I'll find him. Uh, you know what? I have it here. Um, Michael Dave, David Hasselhoff. Who am I talking about? I have it right here. And he was the star. The series was back in 1983. And Heather has picked a very interesting quote from. If you're a real fan of Knight Rider, this is season two, episode seven. Okay, it was the adventures of a young man and his incredible supercar so far ahead.
ahead of their time. Oh, my. Here's the quote. My sensors indicate you're somewhat disturbed, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Heather, I I couldn't possibly do justice to that. Heather Ashton, welcome back. How have you been? Very well, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Love the quote. It, you know, we've been doing this series, What with Larry, for two, three years now. I don't think anybody has quoted Kit the Talking Car yet. So, Heather, thank you for bringing us up to speed and taking us back in time in the time reverse time machine. So, Heather, tell me, why this quote? We're talking about data, autonomous cars, connected cars, Internet. We're talking Wi-Fi hotspots. We're talking about our data being maybe sucked out or conveyed on a very fast digital electronic um, conveyor belt out to the world first. From the car. So, what would Kit have to say about this? <laughs> Kit would be so excited because finally, this <laughs> is Kit's day in the sun. <laughs> Twenty-four years later, right? We're we're, we're getting there, or getting closer. Um, the the reason I picked the quote is really to show um, again the the foresight of those uh, those Hollywood producers back when um, to the future time when your car can be sentient, can tell you, or can understand how you feel and can respond to you. Um, and it sounded like sci-fi back then, but we're we're getting closer to that every day. And, and the question becomes from the data perspective, right? So now you have these sensors, everything's connected, you know, that cognitive is coming into play. So you can actually start to do some machine learning and understand, you know, what the driver is doing, what they're thinking, where they're looking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then the question becomes, how much do you want that to happen? You know, so I think, you know, Kit was Michael's best friend back in the show. Um, but the question becomes, do, do we expect or want our vehicles to become our, our kits, our, you know, to sense and respond to us in, in such a way, um, in, you know, as we move through the environment? So that's, that was the, uh, the reason for, behind the quote. I think it's brilliant. So let me ask you, Heather Ashton, to answer that question. Do you want your car to say, hello, Heather, you're looking particularly beautiful today. Busy day at work. Can I help you warm up that coffee on this little built-in hot plate here? Blah, blah, blah. Do you want Kit talking to you in the future? I have to say, you know, given the fact that I tend to be the nurturer in everyone else's lives around me, it would be kind of nice to have, have the car take, have the car take care of me in such a way. Um, would it be able to talk me down when I get upset and want to, you know, honk my horn at, at, a, at a traffic incident or, you know, something like that? Could it, could it kind of diffuse me in situations? That wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, so I might be one of those people who, who wouldn't mind that, wouldn't mind that, um, the sense and response. But the challenge for me would be that they'd have to get it right. So if they, if they misread or, mis- uh. you know, represented, right, if the car failed to do that machine learning and really understanding um, that's where I think it can all it could all go horribly wrong. <laughs> Very interesting. So I think you've just added another another uh, possible profession for the the sentient the perceptive car, and that would be car as therapist. We're just going <laughs> to leave that one alone. Talk this woman down. She's about to take a wrong parking spot. We we know how about you in the the parking spot. So thank you, Heather, very much. And Joe Barkai is up next. Joe has sent us a quote from Sam L. Savage. Interesting. The author of the Flaw of Averages. Joe, I've never heard of this before, but uh, Sam Savage apparently. Let's see who he is. Uh, he got a, a PhD in computer science from Yale University back in nineteen. 19- 73. He spent a year working at GM, General Motors Research Lab, then joined the Management Science Faculty at University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, and he is a very, very smart man. He discovered a package, he developed a software package called What's Best that coupled linear programming to Lotus 1, 2, 
2003, and won PC Magazine's Technical Excellence Award in 1986. All that aside, he wrote The Flaw of Averages. There's a play on words. We all say the law. He says that plans based on average assumptions are wrong on average in areas as diverse as healthcare, accounting, the war on terror, and climate change, and a lot more. Everybody look it up. Fascinating. Here is the quote. Information has no value at all unless it has the potential to change a decision. Joe Barkai, fabulous. Are you a big follower of Sam Savage? I'm not him per se, but certainly the title of the book. I've been warning, as it were, people for many, many years not to pay too much attention to averages because averages tend to hide the ugly truth. Unless you really understand data over time, unless you understand variability in the data, averages are can be meaningless or, as Sam Savage often says, dangerous. But the point here was really the quote about the value of information. I have to admit that, you know, I work with many companies developing those cutting-edge technologies, so we have all these terabytes of data, and the machines talk to each other and send information and so on. Um, so I, talk, I work with companies on that, but what I really care about is why is this important to whom? So my job is to ask who cares? So what if a machine can generate all this data? Of course, it needs a lot of data for its own operation, but do we as business owners, as consumers, as I'm, you know, uh, somewhat down um, driver like Heather, what's the value to us? And I wish we had more conversation about the value, the outcome of information, and less about how many terabytes of data are going to come from this sensor or another one. So this is why I chose this quote. Very interesting. And and our, our topic today, Joe, is more than just the information. It's, it's somebody cashing in. And I think there's a maybe a big brother, big sister, big big mommy and daddy question here lurking in the background of the topic that Larry Soli picked for us today. It's who's cashing in? So the information could be seen as, is it changing our lives? As Heather said, will the sentient car know her mood, be able to calm her down, get her where she wants to go more efficiently? And if you look outside of that, when the data goes to someone else, Will it change their mind about perhaps who we are, who our cars can become, how we can become an income stream for them? So I'm seeing many levels of, of this quote. Joe, any care to comment on my comment? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then I think one of the questions is really, is the car at the center of this conversation? I know it's an automotive yes. conversation. Yes. But the question is and should be, and Larry and I talk about this from time to time, where is the center of my activity and the value provided to me as a consumer, as a passenger, as an occupant? Is it the car or is it something different? Going back to Heather's story, which is, of course, very interesting, there are AI, artificial intelligence-based applications to you know, act as therapists. And I'm not talking about the Eliza of, like, uh, when was Eliza? Like in the 70s, maybe? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, they are really serious um, therapist-like applications, and then there are some incidents where they, it was shown that they have value. So I'm not objecting necessarily to the role of data or AI, even in those kind of very personal interactions. My question here is the car at the center of the conversation, is the car data is the center, or maybe we should say, or should ask, is the car uh, data um, part of a bigger universe of information that I, as a, as a passenger, as an occupant, as a consumer, is interested yeah, in, in accepting. 
Thank you very much, Joe. Very interesting. We always always get into a deep conversation with you, and I appreciate it. There, there is the mirror, and there's the level of where are we exactly talking about. I appreciate that. And now let's turn to Larry Stoley. Larry, we have been invoking your name various points in the show up till now, and you are the sponsor of this series, and very interesting topic. So Larry has sent us a quote from somebody he informed me is very obscure. If I say the name Russell Smith, you might all say, oh, the musician, the songwriter, great. No, this is a different Russell Smith. He grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He studied French literature at Queen's University, the University of Poitiers, and the University of Paris Trois. I'll say that's three. He's a freelance reporter and cultural commentator published in the New York Review of Books, Toronto Life, Flair, Now, En Route, and other journals. And he writes two weekly columns in the Globe and Mail, one on culture and language and one on advice for men in the style section. I wonder if that's the one Larry has been reading. So, Larry, here's the quote Larry has selected for us today. Everybody listen up closely. It's tangential to our conversation, but very important. Have you noticed the people most likely to be up in arms about governments apparently spying on us tend to be the most non-private people you know? The people launching petitions and wailing about Big Brother and data collection are most likely to be the most constant self-presenters. Well, Larry Stoley, that's a provocative quote. Have you been? I've been well. Glad to have you back on your own series. So how did you find this Russell Smith and uh, how did you find this quote? I, I thought this was very bizarre. It, it's very, you know, Russell Smith uh, is somewhat, as you said, obscure. But I found this quote and it just hit me. You know, we, we're talking about personal data. We're talking about personal data from the car. Uh, we own the car, so it's personal data. Let's be honest mm-hmm. about that. We own, you know, our lives. We own our smartphones and all that stuff. That's personal data and so on. You know, what do, you, what do we do with that? The data coming from those things is very, very short-lived. But a lot of people complain, oh, this is serious. You know, a lot of people say, we don't want people having this. We don't want to share this. And there are people who willingly share for gain, but yet at the same time mm-hmm. complain and complain and complain about not enough privacy. I mean, think about Heather. You know, she gets in her car and her car tries to talk her down from um, <laughs> uh, being frustrated or, or angry, if you will. Wait a minute. You know, think about that data. If it leaves the car, uh, Heather, you're not going to drive right now. You're a little too agitated. We're going to turn the car <laughs> off. Think about that for a minute. So, so the point is, you know, there, there's tons of data out there. It has, in my estimation, very fleeting value or very finite data in a very narrow t- slice of time. But the fact of the matter is, you know, many, many people who... Uh, uh, spend a lot of time complaining and wringing their hands about data and so on, you know, are the ones that are the most public, the most out there and so on. So, you know, I think this whole notion of data and who owns it and so on is kind of, you know, uh, really a past tense thought these days. It's out there, it's available, and it's there to be used and leveraged, but the value of it is very, very precise, it's very, very narrow, and it's very, very focused. So uh, let's don't get too carried away about who owns the data. Let's get uh, thinking about the value of that data, as Joe said. You know, it's only worth something if you can do something with it and uh, go from there. 
Thank you, Larry. Larry, we've heard, I think we've discussed, and you hear in the news that companies thinking they're going to cash in on our car-related or car-generated data are too late to the game, that this data is already out there. We're all connected everywhere else. We, we're connected to medical devices and wearables, and everywhere we go, there's GPS tracking, and no matter where you are on social media, and we know from watching crime shows, and I'm going to ask this question around the table as well, Larry. Uh, we, we, we watch on ta- crime shows every time you go through an easy pass, and now I believe most New York tolls will be non-cash. You will either have to have an easy pass device or you will get a toll sent to you by a picture of your license plate that is taken at one of these drive under this this the station no longer will you stop at a toll booth interesting uh so is is our companies planning to cash in too late to the party larry is there any anything new left that they could glean from the data they're getting from our cars what do you think well the, the honest truth is there, there's no big pile of cash to be made everything that you know, is realized from data is, is going to be very precise in time. It's going to be very narrowly focused. So as you talk about uh, the toll collection in New York, and, and by the way, I don't think New York is alone in that approach right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's going to be that specific point in time. How do you make money off, off of it? You know, if, if the car company who sends a piece of data to, you know, iPass in Illinois or your toll system in New York, how does a car company monetize that? Do they get a little slice of that transaction? A little slice mm-hmm. of two bucks, three bucks, five bucks, whatever, is pretty small change. And also it's huge volume, you know, in terms of number of transactions. So I, I just don't see it as particularly valuable to a car company. Sending data to a technician, to a diagnostic center, and so on and so forth, I think that's very, very viable. But again, it's very mm-hmm. narrowly focused, and it's opportunistic at this particular point in time, not, uh, you know, not in, in a broad sense, when they collect it for quality purposes and so on. It's valuable, but it's only valuable to the car maker. So, yeah. You know, let's let's not get carried away with this. Car companies been trying to figure out how to monetize what they've invested in cars for years, and they're still trying. They're still trying. Let's circle around the table to Heather Ashton. Agree or disagree with Larry Stolle, Heather? What's your position at your perch at IDC Insights and as a car driver in life? Sure, um, I do agree. I agree with Larry to a point, and and it's interesting what we see again from the IDC perspective, too, that we cover um, innovation. So I'm in the product and service innovation group. So what's the role to, of this data to the OEMs, the automotive OEMs? And, yeah, I agree. They're, they're kind of late to the game to, to quote-unquote, cash in. But they have access to and the ability to capture an, a tremendous trove of data about usage, behavior, usage, the quality of the car. So not only the, the performance of the car itself, but how the human interacts with the car and how they, you know, how they go about, right, using, utilizing that product, utilizing that car. And so I think the benefit to the, the automotive OEMs is to shift the focus away from some of that, you know, monetization of the data and how, how do we take our little piece, right, our little royalty along the way. Um, and more toward how do we capture this and understand what's the next Uber app? What's the next thing that customers are going to want to do with their car or with ride sharing or with mobility that we can then be the first to, you know, to deliver to them? And that's why I think you're seeing all of these, you know, auto OEMs move in and make acquisitions and make investments in this area of mobility and in this area of different types of, you know, apps related to, you know, the connected car, et cetera. So I think that 
that's kind of the square focus that the, the auto OEM should be thinking about in terms of data. Not, you know, how do we get our two cents, right, as Larry was saying, right off of every, out of every transaction. Thank you very much, Heather. Interesting. Joe Barkai, are you going to be on one side of the fence, the other? Are you going to set up a whole new I'll, fence I'll here? What be, do you I'll think? Be on, I'll, I'll be on both and then my own side as well. So, Good. <laughs> uh, I, here's an example, you know, shining on what Heather was saying. And I've been talking about what I called IoT, Internal Things, IoT-infused innovation for many years now. But um, I often go to, you know, when I'm in, in public speaking setups, I often ask how many people have a CD player in the car? And then mm-hmm. I said, how many of you are using it? And then, of course, just jokingly, uh, who doesn't know if they have a CD player in the car? <laughs> and if it's a very young audience, I ask, do you even know what a CD is? <laughs> point is, point is uh, when you release a product to the field, you often view, m- 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 lose view of the product. Um, so OEMs uh, are already doing it, but they can do so much more. And actually, I have an open in front of me for a presentation I'm doing, uh, a speech I'm giving to uh, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So Jamie Hersko, that was uh, at some point GM's vice president of quality, said, talking about On, uh, OnStar, um, we can look at virtually thousands and thousands of performance metrics within the engine via OnStar. It gives us a huge strategic advantage. So in, in their view, knowing more about the car, and as Heather said, knowing more about the driver and the interaction between the car and the driver teaches us a lot. But I also agree with both Larry and Ashton. This is sort of a narrow path. It's very important, but it's just one aspect of it. The greater value obviously comes from combining card-generated data and external data, you know, tolls and then location and so on. And then it brings up a question that I believe we talked in the last um, radio show we, we had together, which is, is the car uh, or the OEM-generated and SIM data not trying to compete, unsuccessfully so, with mobile devices. Because everything we said thus far, other than vehicle-specific and driver-vehicle interaction, everything we said so far can be provided more effectively, efficiently, cheaply, more securely, securely uh, using a mobile device. So OEMs have a, have a very, very difficult uh, battle to fight here. My opinion, they need to, com- to collaborate with other ecosystem partners and not going alone, go it alone. So it's not going to be an easy ka-ching, ka-ching. I think that's the message here. But, Larry, the show isn't over. We still have more than a half hour to go. We're going to dive into this from many different angles. But you know what? Before we go to break, you all know the drill. We're going to find out where are you each calling from and what's in your cup today. Larry will even ask you because we know the answer anyway, but we'll ask you. So, Heather Asha, where are you today? Uh, what are you drinking now or anything interesting you're planning to drink, let's say, closer to... New Year's Eve 2020. Why don't we do a forward, a future, a future drink, Heather, just to mix it up a little bit. And mixing it up, it could be a cocktail. Or are you brewing a, a all-time wonderful Kahlua in the the sink in your garage? I don't know, Heather. Heather, what are you what are you thinking about? <laughs> oh, so I'm calling from the Greater Boston area, and um, and I have fallen in love with cold brew for the summer for coffee. So let me just state that it's the newest fad, and I'm I'm on board. Um, so I wonder how I could turn that into a drink on New Year's Eve, probably with Kahlua and some kind of maybe <laughs> almond cream or, or something else if, if, I, if need be. But I, I am loving the fact that I feel like I'm drinking coffee ice cream, you know, with just a little almond milk in my cold brew and I'm a happy person these days. So that's, that's, uh, I'll have to work on that. I got three, three years till 2020. Figure out how Is to it, that I know three New Year's Eve to, to practice, but Heather, are you making <laughs> the cold brew at home or are you buying it and buying it already done? <laughs> 
I'm actually buying it in concentrate, so um, I haven't I haven't um, experimented with making it at home. It because I, I got to get you have to get the concentrate, you know, to the right. The iced coffee I brew at home just doesn't taste the same. So this has been just a godsend to me the past two weeks. <laughs> Interesting. Now, do you have a choice of caffeine or non-caffeine, so to speak? Most definitely caffeine. I am a caffeinated person <laughs> until two p.m. every day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Heather. So Heather's a cold brew fan. Good to know. Joe Barkai, I'm not going to ask you where you sit on the regular brew or cold brew, but Joe, where are you calling from and what do you love to drink? Um, and maybe New Year's Eve 2020, what are you planning? Yes, yeah, so I'm calling like Heather from different part of greater Boston. Um, I'm working now towards my annual automotive conference in China, so I was up since very early this morning to have calls with my team in China. So I'm done with the coffee. Uh, just like Heather, I've been kind of surviving on, on iced coffee. Do not know what I'm going to do for 2018 or 2020. That's way too out. But I do have something to encourage all of us to continue talking about coffee. Just this morning, as I was waiting for my call, I caught a, um, results of two studies published on the Annals of Internal Medicine. So there was a study surveying... 520,000 people in like 10 European countries. Uh, it was the largest study to date on, on coffee and mortality. And the study found mm. that drinking more coffee could significantly lower a person's risk of mortality. Just pay attention. That's important. So really? Heather, it's yes. Wow. And it's the Annals of Internal Medicine, so it's not like um, I'm not going to name any, any, any TV networks. Um, and <laughs> we all know who you were talking yeah. about. It was on the tip of my tongue, and I said, better judgment, do not mention no, 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 that person's no, name. No, nothing like that, and we're not going to talk about fake news, etc. This is real stuff. <laughs> uh, a study on the same, yes. the same issue, did, which is very interesting because they did the same thing on non-white population. The problem with many of these studies that it has kind of... Had, homogeneous white population. So this other study uh, did the survey across multiple ethnicities and so on. And again, I'm quoting, found that coffee increases longevity across various races. There, there you go. Now, is that coffee, caffeine, cold brew, any particular kind of coffee, Joe? Just I especially, want to put this in a tweet. Especially cold brew. Especially cold, cold brew. brew. Prolongs know. life. <laughs> wow. I'm going to put that in. Joe, Bro- Joe Barkai read that cold brew prolongs life. Okay, that's going in a tweet. Larry, I can't wait yeah, to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, putting out a coffee I'm blast here. I'm going to get You're in gonna, trouble. But look it up. The Analyst of Internal Medicine. Okay, and Mr. Stoli, where are you today? I know you're not in Boston. And what are you drinking, Larry? Surprise me. I'm home office. How can I surprise you with Folgers, Bonnie? I, I just can't, you know. And, and you asked the question, 2020. You know, I was going to respond to that and say, you know, I'm the old person in this crew. I don't have time to be worrying about, uh, you know, 2020. But then Joe brought up something that, that I saw on TV last night as well. It does increase your lifespan, so the reports go. So, you know, I'm sitting here saying, the caf- you know, the coffee I drink is increasing my longevity. Hmm. Maybe I should fabulous. be thinking about 2020. The other thing that, <laughs> that I, I just love to say is, and by the way, I am drinking coffee from my Yeti cup this morning. I of find course that, you are. <laughs> uh, I find that I'm, I'm a wanderer as I work from the home office during the day. I do something, get up, walk, come back, do something else. And my, when I do the radio show here, I'm sitting for an hour. So I get my Yeti cup. It stays warm. I'm happy. 
But the one thing that I'm not convinced about is this whole notion of caffeine. Heather said she stops drinking at 2 in the afternoon. You know, jeez, caffeine? I can drink at 2 minutes to bedtime, and I'm fine. So I'm not really really sure it exists. Wow. Joe Barkai, we need to find a study on why some people are caffeine-affected three, four, five, six, eight hours before bedtime where they can't sleep and they're jangled, and others like Larry can mm-hmm. ingest caffeine uh, two minutes, uh, 120 seconds before hitting the pillow, and he sleeps like a baby. That, yep. That's a mystery of life, Larry Stoley. Joe, we need a study on that. I'm going to empower Joe to find something like that. We're having an interesting yep. conversation here. We're talking about coffee and cold brew and prolonging life while on the topic of the connected car and your data. Who's cashing in? And maybe, Larry, Sorry, we should change the title of this episode from who's cashing in to who would love to be cashing in and how in the world will they make that happen and how much cash is there in them thar hills and them thar car. So we're going to take a quick break that refreshes. We're talking today, of course, with Heather Ashton at IDC Manufacturing Insights, Joe Barkai, our resident, non-resident industry analyst, blogger, writer, and all-around uh, creator of the third fence on the show, and Larry Stoley, the car guy at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and nothing interesting in my cup just some cool clear water with a pink straw because I'm hoping the sun will come back out it's a little bit cloudy here in New York on Long Island and Heather and, and Joe I don't know what the weather is up there in Boston but it's not quite a beautiful day here so we're hoping hoping for no rain actually no more storms so without even thinking about it don't even touch that mouse that app that dial you know we'll be right back a lot more to talk about here and it's good stuff so Kevin out Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. SAP is excited to be a co-innovator with the automotive industry as we help automotive and related companies digitally transform their entire industry and disrupt their existing business models. The Future of Cars with Game Changers brings you insights from the people in the driver's seat who are making this happen. We'll delve into industry challenges and solutions that support ecosystem industries, all to help you succeed in transforming your business and business networks for success in the new digital networked age. Tune in to the Business Channel to hear today's top technology and business strategy thought leaders share expert insights on how the automotive industry is shaping the future of change for all of us. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of cars with Game Changers. 
Indeed, let's. And I have to tell you, Larry, somebody at SAP Industries, that's their handle, said, is tweeting, now on SAP Radio, connected car in your data who's cashing in. And they're quoting Joe Barkai, tremendous progress in AI technologies, improving safety of cars. But they have a really, really cool image of a car with, it looks like the Wi-Fi image of, you know, it looks like half of a, half of a rainbow coming out of the front, the back, and the top of this little tiny car. I can't tell whether the car is going forward or backwards. It's one of those amorphous windows all over the place and wheels equidistant, and I'm not sure how the door opens, but really cool graphic. Anybody wants to see this, and thank you, SAP Industries, for listening. Anybody wants to see this, go to Twitter. That's right. It's okay. You can go there. Hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Only real news, no fake news. So Heather Ashton has agreed to start the roundtable, and here is Heather who's going to help us get into a real use case for connected car data, which is our topic today. She says, it is irrefutable. I can see her pounding on the desk. It is irrefutable that UBI, or usage-based insurance, is the first and hottest real, real is not only in caps, it's in quotes, is the first and hottest real use case for connected car data. Heather, please tell us more. Sure. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's interesting how that kind of has evolved. Everyone has been talking about how are we going to monetize the data? Is it in, you know, being able to send you through the Starbucks line and have, you know, the car be able to, you know, communicate your order? You know, some of those kind of and further fetched ideas than that. But we really have seen in the last two years an uptick in this usage-based insurance. And the reason I believe, and, um, and I'm sure others have said this, as well, so this is not news, uh, is because it is a mutually beneficial agreement, meaning by agreeing to be tracked, have your usage tracked of how much you're using a car, how you're driving, you know, i.e. hard braking, you know, accelerating, et cetera, et cetera, um, the consumer benefits by potentially lowering the rate of the insurance. And the insurance companies benefit by being able to um, better pinpoint the best sort of risk that they're taking, right? How to price that risk, how to, you know, um, and how to understand how to gain from it or, or protect themselves from it, depending. So I feel that that is a great example of, of when and how monetization of the data coming off a connected car is going to be, um, you know, useful. It really has to benefit multiple parties. It can't just be all for the auto OEMs or all for the insurance company or, or all for the consumer. It has to be um, kind of a, a win-win situation. So I think that's what we're going to see um, you know, continue to evolve as it has to be that type of an equation. Interesting. Joe Barkai, love to get your thoughts on this. Agree or disagree? Um, agree. Uh, this is absolutely a good use case of using uh, vehicle data, um, although what I'm seeing from very informal studies is that many users are really not, they are reporting they are not seeing the savings, they are not seeing the benefits. I do not have good data to explain why. Is it anecdotal? Uh, is long-term? Is it going to change? But we're not really seeing, some users don't report seeing uh, savings. But I, I want to kind of maybe be more precise about the use of OEM data here because the, the uh, insurance companies actually bypassed the OEMs in doing so. So one key observation, I think, to the intro that we, we had before the, the break, uh, the OEMs missed that opportunity. Uh, they never mm-hmm. thought about doing this, or, or they never thought about monetizing this in way of business. And what um, insurance companies are doing, they're using a standard port in the car that OEMs were, quote-unquote, forced to implement because of um, um, EPA regulations. So in a way, the insurance companies found a mechanism to use vehicle data 
without the OEMs. And then obviously there are some stories about OEMs reporting or, or complaining about the insurance companies, the UBI dongle interfering with the car data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Point still is um, OEMs miss the opportunity, and I think it's just one of many areas where uh, OEMs are just not understanding vehicle data in the context of the consumer, in the context of the business of the consumer. Interesting. Larry Stoley, time for your thoughts. What do you think? Agree or disagree? You know, this whole insurance thing is kind of fascinating to me. I started working on this with a company, gosh, 20 years ago, where we talked about how can we look at driving location, how can we look at driving habits and modify uh, higher or lower insurance costs based upon that data. And, you know, it's just all a great idea. But, you know, Joe brought up the comment, you know, people are not seeing vast savings in this. Well, the answer to that is pretty clear to me. Uh, the reason for that is cars sit 90% of their time in their driveway, and they're still insured. And they spend 1%, mm-hmm. 2%, 3% driving in areas that you know may have reduced risk. So it's a very, very small slice of time that you know the, the insurance costs can come down, hence why they see relatively little change in their insurance premium. The point is demonetization of, of data. If I'm not using my car, why in the heck am I paying insurance for it when I'm sitting on the driveway? Certainly, certainly there's comprehensive you know, weather or something like that can happen. But liability? I'm sorry. Give me a break. Yeah. Give me the credit I- back. Zero operation means zero cost in that sense, doesn't it? And I don't. I, I agree with today. you, Larry. My car is garaged about eighty-five percent of the time. If I drive five miles a week, I've got a two thousand eight three fifty Z in perfect condition that has twenty-nine thousand miles on it. The car is ten years old. It hasn't yep. even reached thirty thousand, and I am paying sports car rates in New York for that car. Heather, you know, you know. And I have talked to them, and they said, well, the minimum is 3,500 miles. And I said, but my car isn't going 3,500 miles. It's barely going anywhere. Saturdays, 5, 10 miles at the most, that's it. And they're telling me, no, you have to pay for 3,500 miles minimum a year. I, I agree. Larry, that is one of the conundrums. That's a freebie for them. You're right. They're insuring for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Very interesting. Unless somebody in the garage here bumps into me, which my neighbor did about a year ago and and took off the mirror and did a little dent in the door. And, you know, she paid me cash to have that fixed. So what can I tell you? Very interesting, Larry. You brought up it's almost a moral dilemma, but that's another topic for another show, maybe for 2018. uh, Heather, do you want to wrap this one up briefly? And I want to move to a topic on Joe's list. Please go ahead. Yeah, so I would say today we're not seeing, you know, maybe not understanding the value. It's definitely intriguing, which is why the consumers are participating, right, to be kind of become the sensors on the node, the nodes on the network, as Joe said, um, as far as those, you know, OBI um, interfaces. But I I would say that the the future, what that will bring is this notion as we shift away from car ownership and maybe car sharing or car usage in different mobility type of scenarios, then because of all the data that's being collected by these insurance companies to understand what the risk is, then they can more precisely insure us when we are in a car or using a car or however it's going to be. But I think it's going to change the way the car, the insurance works. So you might not, Bonnie, be insured for your car all the time if you're only putting 30,000 miles. Maybe you'll be insured by the mile. 
maybe, you know, maybe you'll be insured by the, the mileage, you know, time, times proximity or wherever you're actually driving. Um, so I, I do think that the, in the future we will benefit. I think it's just in, in the current, you know, situation, uh, the maturity of it is that we're not quite there yet. But I think it will, I think it's an example of how I think that will, the data coming from that will drive new services and different types of understandings of how to insure, how to insure a vehicle and a person. You have given me some hope. Thank you, Heather, very much. Joe Barkai, I talked in the beginning about who's cashing in in my monologue, and I said something about uh, is it going to be selling the data to businesses like tech giants, Google and Apple. So let's talk about the giants in here. I'm looking at Joe's notes, and he says, Fear of Google and Tesla does wonders. Automakers believe that the auto design, manufacturing, and retail operations were protected, and they could control the ecosystem and the cadence of change. Let me just stop there, Joe. It sounds like the start to a very beautiful poem or a sci-fi movie. I'm not sure. Joe, tell us more, please. Yes, uh, I actually I use the same kind of concept, and the analogy was that for many years, OEMs use technology as business practices that have not changed for years uh, to kind of erect thick walls around the around the the um, the castle and dig deep moats. So the image that I usually have is actually Monty Python more than anything else about the this, the, the the lights on on the wall. But the point is that many of the models, many of the business practices led OEMs to believe, automakers and, and suppliers, that they were protected, that their technology superiority was all that was necessary to really drive the business. They were protected by retail, uh, franchise retail laws and so on. But companies like Google and Tesla and others are really challenging everything in the status quo, all the way from Tesla becoming an OEM, the first one in so many mm-hmm. years that actually is sufficiently successful, time will tell. So far they are struggling, but Time will tell. Uh, they challenged Tesla. They did challenge the um, retail operations. Um, auto design is taking different faces. You have companies like Local Motors. You have a company like uh, OS Vehicle that many pe- very few people know about. But the concept is to white label a car, so a new brand can actually white label a car. Everything hmm. is changing, uh, and and OEMs have been very very slow to really follow up and to use connectivity to use. The fact that they own parts of the design, they own part of the ecosystem, they actually own the time of the consumer, they were very slow to, to adopt to it, which is why, as we said, just said, you know, insurance companies jumped on this opportunity. Uh, and another point there, and I'll pause, especially about Google and Microsoft and so on, I would continue to say that these people are smart enough not to want to get into the vehicle manufacturing business. There's no value in doing that. The value is making sure that they are always in your, you are always in their presence, I actually actually mm-hmm. say. You know, they want to make, to create a nonstop immersive digital experience that you never leave, which means that your identity and your, you consume and produce information is always within this Google Cloud or Microsoft tools. Whether you drive this car or another car, whether it's a rental car uh, or, or your car that you loan. In fact, even if when you're in uh, public transit, they want a nonstop digital experience. So to them, and I might have said this in the past as well, to them, everything that happens in the car is destruction and disruption from this digital experience. Uh, and this will, I think, drive a lot of conversation around how to monetize and how to deliver the value to consumers. It cannot be through the car's dashboard. And I'll there you go. 
Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Very provocative. Larry Stoley, what do you think? How, how present is this threat of Google and Tesla, these new entrants that are forcing automakers to rethink what they're doing and their partnerships? What do you see, well, Larry? It, it's all about the technology. And Google and Tesla uh, nowadays, Apple and so on, these folks are on product cycles or technology cycles that just make your head spin. The traditional or the car business for the last hundred hundred plus years has been on. Let's face it, you know, the minimum of one year product cycle, and you know, many cases a platform cycle is much longer than that. So car companies are, you know, one year to introduce something new to take advantage of something new and so on. Google, Apple, and so on take advantage of new technology virtually instantaneously. I mean, they, they roll it out, you get an update on your smartphone, and, you know, it's sitting there waiting for you. You install it overnight. They've got a new opportunity to do something with data. Car companies, every year is how long it takes to make that change and to realize any benefit that may accrue to them. So car companies are just not set up to compete for data. Why is that, Larry? Is it who's in charge? Is it the, the idea that the car is this thing? It weighs a ton or more. It's made of metal and, and other parts. The data is something that you think of as coming, I don't know, out of the sky or the, the atmosphere that it's out there somewhere. Is it a juxtaposition of, shall I say, materials or, or modes? Why is it so hard for them to get it? A, a, a car is mostly physical stuff. You know, yeah. it, yes, it has many, many lines of code. It has more lines of code than some military aircraft these days. We all know that. But it's still a collection of physical stuff that takes much time. A smartphone, on the, uh, on the other hand, is pretty much a collection of software and firmware. It's not about the physical thing. So things are much more flexible, much more uh, ad- adopted to quick and easy change in the smartphone tablet world uh, than they are in automobiles. So, you know, I, I think oh, that's uh, just the way we are. I hear Joe. Oh, Joe oh, wants to jump in. Go. Com- yeah, if, I'm, if I'm a comparing telephone to a car is good when we think about the mindset and the culture of these companies, but not necessarily product to product. Still today, until we have cars that are completely safe and autonomous, building cars is very, very difficult business. Yep. Um, and, you know, see what happens to Tesla. Tesla figured out, you know, all they need to do is buy the Numi factory and everything will be hunky-dory. And they are now sitting on backlog of 400,000 units and they are not going to be able to make it. Um, and they, they are struggling with supply chain. They're struggling with manufacturing. They're really struggling with quality. Um, and, and it's just a very, very difficult business to, to get in. But I agree with Larry. The culture that is, is, is lacking and understanding that we have to move, or they have to move from building cars to providing mobility, from thinking about the car and features and functions to the car as part of the everyday life, uh, and it's part of the time where we consume and produce information, but it's not the goal anymore, especially for younger people. Cars ownership is not, car ownership is not a goal anymore as much as mobility, and, and car makers had a hard time migrating out of this thinking, and again, they're relying on these old castle walls that protect them and I think they look at Tesla every so often and say yeah I told you so Making, building cars is very very difficult but that's just a temporary setback I think that uh, we'll see more and more companies getting into the business uh, and again especially as we move into cars that are more capable in active safety features that are primarily electronic and software 
uh, they, they make manufacturing uh, so much easier. Uh, but it'll be a long haul because at the end, you know, it's, it's a mechanical system. Uh, alignment and fit uh, are very, very critical. Noise and rattle will chase, you know, will continue to plague Tesla owners. They will never tell you that because they own a Tesla. But noise and rattle and, and, and leaks are fairly prevalent in Tesla cars nowadays. Mm, we want to get Heather to chime in on this before we yeah. go to our predictions <laughs> round. Heather, talk to me. Sure. What do you think? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I agree with um, both Larry and, and Joe both bring up a really good point about the, the position of the uh, auto OEMs. Um, and, and basically, they have been focused on and they've done a stellar job of delivering cars to market, mechanical cars to market. And yes, all the new technologies that they're putting in it. That, and when you bring up Google and these other companies that are moving in, and Uber, et cetera, that are moving into the mobility fray, what you're talking about is that intimacy with the customer or the consumer. And the auto OEMs have been removed from that because they sell through a dealer network. So I think what is changing and what needs to change is the mindset within the OEMs is to understand we need to be more intimate with our direct customer consumer, the driver of the car or the passenger in the vehicle, depending on where we are with um, autonomy. And then we need to deliver the services that they want. And data is the source of that, right? You know, think of OnStar and what, 20 plus years of data that, that GM has been gathering. Well, they haven't done a lot with it, as, you know, as Joe would say, or even Larry, right, in terms of applying that data. Um, to useful kind of applications for the for the consumer, and I think that's what's changing. And you're seeing that those innovation groups, you know, being stood up in front of, I mean, in the middle of these, you know, large global OEMs, because they understand that they need to innovate and move quickly. And data is definitely that goal that that they need to mine. Thank you very much, Heather. And Larry, we're just about at our predictions round, but there's something here, a quote in your notes I'd like you to explain for us for just a minute. You say, it's true that there's a great deal of data being generated by and sent to a connected or autonomous vehicle. As Gartner analyst Peter Sondergaard says, quote, data is the 21st century oil, analytics is the combustion engine. Larry, just a quick comment, please. Well, that, that really goes back to where we started part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, the data, the data, the data, it's all there. It's, it's being generated. More will be generated as we go. But let's face it. If you don't do something with the data, um, you know, what's the data worth? So it's just like oil. It, it, oil lays there, you know, refined oil, gasoline. It doesn't do anything on its own. You've got to put it to work in the internal combustion engine or analytics to make it worth something. You've got to do something with it, create actionable intelligence out of it, and so on. So analytics is indeed the engine, and data is indeed the raw material that's converted into something, intelligence, action, uh, whatever. Thank you very much. Heather Ashton, circling back to you, time for predictions. I'll give you a full 60 seconds. I'm so generous, Heather. You can look at 2020 or any point where you're still going to be drinking cold brew, maybe with that Kahlua from the the bathtub sink, I don't know, or the, the garage, and tell us what do you see will be different about this conversation. It's been very provocative. Who's cashing in? How much cash is there on which to cash in or in which to cash, I should say, uh, and, and the future of this connection. Activity-generated data. Will anybody care in a couple of years? Who's going to be running to the bank and saying, "Woohoo, we got there first. Heather, any or all of the above predictions, 60 seconds, it's all yours. Sure. Um, so I'm going to come back to the customer. So it all comes back to the customer, delivering value. And I think the key here when we look out three years is going to be that 
Um, we're going to abandon this whole, you know, cash land grab for data, data equals money, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're going to end up with are some valuable, meaning delivering value, services and through applications, et cetera, to the consumer, to the driver, to the passenger, um, to the, again, to the technician, to the server shop, you name it in this whole kind of, you know, ecosystem of around the connected car. Um, that is where the value is going to lie is delivering those services. And so the companies that get it and get it quickly and first and can anticipate where the market's headed um, beyond the Uber and the ride sharing, what's next, right? What's the next, you know, sort of service? that is valuable to people, that they're willing to pay for, that's where um, the story is going to kind of go or move to. It's not going to be about, you know, charging you, um, you know, entrance fee or charging you uh, usage of, you know, two cents on the, on the, on the gigabyte or whatever for, uh, for the actual data itself. Thank you very much. Joe Barkai, I can give you exactly 60 seconds. Joe, can't yes. wait to hear your so predictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's my kind of chronology. So talking about data. So we will continue in the near future to have so much more conversation about data and AI and machine learning, all this good stuff. Uh, confusion will remain as it is today uh, in great part because we're not understanding who owns what in great degree, to great extent because uh, we have issues in, with incompatible data models and, and semantic models. So it's not that easy to share data as we think. Uh, so we'll see very slow progress from OEMs, and I think that we'll see gradual more and more value coming from non-OEMs, whether they're transportation providers or services providers, you know, Ubers or insurance, what have you. Um, and there will be a, a long period of confusion when we're not figured out exactly how those all these pieces together. And then I think in going to maybe 2020 or so, uh, we will start moving away from talking about cars. A car will be just yet another modality, another source of information and part of services, but we are not going to ask the question, what about car data specifically, just like we are not, I hope. We should not ask, but what phone, mobile phone specific data. It's all cloud of data from multiple sources coming together to provide value. We will stop thinking about the car as being the center of the conversation. So that's my prediction. Thank you very much, Joe Barkai. Larry Stoli, I saved 60 seconds for you, and that's all we have. Go ahead. All right. Well, so, you know, when you think about it, how many smartphones out there? There's the Apple iPhone, there's the Android, you know, particularly Samsung and so on. Just a few uh, primary smartphones out there. I think car companies, as we move towards mobility as a service, as we move to shared uh, mobility and so on, car companies will cease to be about performance, cease to be about styling. To a large degree, that won't go away entirely, but they will become more and more like the commodities, the cell phone, the hardware, and so on. And there, they'll be able to do something with their data, much like Google and Apple have done something with the data. They will look much more like those uh, smartphone companies rather than the 100-plus years of traditional car makers. That's my prediction. Car makers will become commodities, and they will become much like technical devices, smartphones, and so on in the future as we move to the shared mobility economy. Very interesting. Very interesting. Larry, you always pick good, provocative topics on this show, and it's always a pleasure to speak with Heather and Joe as well. Very interesting topic. I've been tweeting. Anybody wants to follow the conversation, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. We've got, let's see, uh, S-A-P Press underscore E-P-M is tweeting. We've got Channel Reach. Welcome. Hope you're listening and enjoying the show. Bill Newman. My goodness, Larry. I don't know where he's been hiding, but William Newman has been tweeting S-A-P Industry. 
Ministries. And let's see, we've also got Heather Heather uh, Ashton has been tweeting and talking at the same time. And some really interesting graphics here people are sharing. So go to hashtag SAP Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Been a pleasure bringing you this very interesting conversation. I love it when we get together with such smart thought leaders, Heather and Joe and Larry. I'll be back in one hour. You can count it. I sure will be. 12 noon Eastern here with the next episode of our Changing the Game with Smart Cities or Smart Cities of the Future. However you want to look at it, we'll be talking about utilities and the smart city. What do utilities need to do to be there for the gazillion people who will be living in cities by 2050? Read it and weep. Talk to you then. So here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. Larry, I always think how appropriate that is for your series above all the others. Fasten your seatbelt. Regardless of what you're in, what you're driving, who's driving you, what's driving you, you still need a seatbelt. That's a reality check. What are you waiting for? Be like Heather. Be like Joe. Be like Larry. Go out and be a game changer today. Have a good one. Be back in one hour here on the Business Channel. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 